Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is April 23rd, 2009, and my guest is Ed Lemer, the Chauncey J. Medbury Chair in Management and Professor in Economics and Statistics at UCLA. His latest book is Macroeconomic Patterns and Stories, a Guide for MBAs, which is our subject for today's podcast. Ed, welcome back to EconTalk. It's great to be invited again. The subtitle for your book, A Guide for MBAs, is a little misleading. It's really a guide for anyone interested in getting an idea of what we know about macroeconomic data. It's a remarkable book. There's nothing else quite like it out there, at least that I've seen. And it's an in-depth and entertaining look, which is quite a feat, at numbers, patterns, and, as you say in the title, stories. Uh, there's also another subtitle of sorts on the front page, front cover, a little quotation of sorts. It says, we are pattern-seeking, storytelling animals. And I'd like you to talk about what you mean by that and how you got that on the cover. Was that easy or a piece of cake or hard? Did the publisher give you any trouble on that? No, the publisher uh, thinks that's a, a, a key idea of the book, so they were happy to put it on there. Actually, there's a pictures on the cover as well of uh, somebody looking through binoculars and seeing a pattern. Yeah, and a father uh, sitting there reading a story to his probably son, and the story is once there was a country ruled by a powerful market. Yeah, I thought that was great. And that's the uh, it's a storytelling that economists have emphasized to a large extent. The, the invisible hand is a story, and a very compelling story. But I'm trying to emphasize the need to do pattern seeking more, and the words are, I think, uh, very appropriate because most economists think of theory and evidence. Exactly. And they think of their discipline as a scientific discipline. And I'm trying to argue that, no, it would be healthier if we recognize the limits of our knowledge, recognize that we're dealing with these complex human systems, and given the data that we have, which is non-experimental, and given the kind of system that we are observing, it would be much more accurate to say that we are seeking patterns and telling stories rather than theory and evidence. In other words, it's a kind of literature that we're carrying on, and the question isn't whether it's true or not. The question is, is it persuasive? What kind of quality do we have for our stories? Are the patterns compelling? Uh, I really think that as a discipline, we ought to have a totally different kind of standard than, than the apparent standard that decides what what things are published and what things are not. Yeah, and I'm a big fan of storytelling for a whole bunch of reasons, one of which is the one you mentioned on the cover, which is that we are storytelling animals. We're also story-listening animals. We like to hear stories and be told stories, and we remember them, and we process them, I think, in very different ways than we process uh, so-called left-brain information, so-called analytical information. One challenge, of course, is that in, say, microeconomics, when you tell stories, which is a huge part of a good micro class, um, it's hard to – we're not good at teaching literature uh, as PhD economists. We're not trained to teach literature. And uh, it's also hard to give exams based on stories. So I think a lot of economists fall back on the, the sort of standard graphs and, and equations approach, which is good for exams and 
easy to teach. Yeah, and it encourages people to take the models literally rather than treating them as rhetorical devices that help us understand how the real economy operates. Um, uh, Deirdre McCloskey is fond of saying that our models are metaphors, which I think is an accurate way of describing the situation. And uh, in in literature, a metaphor is the hardest thing to understand. If you if you're new to speaking a language, you you often are not getting the metaphors at all. So I, in my class, international economics, I ask what the students think I mean if I say Joe's elevator doesn't stop on all floors. <laughs> and the um, the Americans or English speakers get it immediately. But the foreigners of whom, uh, who are the uh, dominant uh, part of that class, they're thinking literally that Joe has an elevator in his house. It's flawed. And, and uh, <laughs> it's not stopping on all floors. Yeah, it doesn't. So the, the message is that, that um, the economics models that we have have mathematical properties, but they also have messages, and that the quality economist is able to understand the difference and not to think of the... Models is literally true. Not to think of every mathematical property of a model needs to be taken seriously. The model is trying is helping us understand how the real economy operates and should not be taken literally. I find it increasingly um, that art that argument increasingly persuasive, as anyone who's been listening to the show will will notice. But I also find it uh, a very lonely view. Uh, most economists, when I confront them with that are very surprised at the concept, and they keep falling back on this idea that they're scientists, uh, particularly if we're talking about issues where there's ideological uh, contamination of, of what people are doing scientifically or dogmatic contamination, people who are in a certain school pushing an idea. And when you ask them about whether that affects their work, they say, no, I'm a scientist, but um, I'm becoming increasingly skeptical of that, that dichotomy. Yeah, I think it's. I don't think science is what we do. I don't think science is what scientists do either. I mean, they're telling stories and looking for patterns, but they have uh, more uniformity in their opinions than we do, and they have science and they have uh, experimental data, which is much more uh, consequential than what we have. So it'd be healthy, I, th- I think, if we understood the limits to our knowledge. In a way, the the crisis that we're in now on a global scale is due to the overstatement of the precision with which economists and financial analysts understand how the real world works. So when it comes to these, um, the uh, ratings that the rating agencies do, I think the fundamental problem is that they're using two-valued logic. Two-valued logic is true, false, uh, yes, no. The kind of logic that safe. we teach in econometrics. Safe, not safe. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> And we teach that in econometrics, that the type 1 and type 2 errors are, are the uh, only possibilities. But in complex uh, human systems, there's a third possibility, which is we don't know. True, false, and we don't know. And when it came to mortgage-backed securities, the range of we don't know is really quite substantial. And it would be much more accurate if we, ref- if we reflected that in, our, in, in the evaluation. So instead of giving the mortgage-backed securities the, the uh, first tranches, the AAA rating, they should have been given AAA-H, meaning it's hypothetical, meaning that models suggest that these are AAA securities, but they haven't been tested under stressful conditions. Until they are, they're strictly going to be hypothetical. So that said, it's, it's the third... 
component in 3Variant Logic that we should have been using for rating the securities, which is really don't we really don't know. And I think that's true for a lot that uh, our profession uh, holds uh, dear. It's a, lo- a lot of stuff we just don't know, and if we, it would be more healthy, I believe, if we could admit that. And the, re- the rhetoric of admitting it would just say patterns and stories uh, <clears throat> rather than... Um, Green evidence, which suggests a kind of scientific certitude that we're never going to, t- to attain in this uh, human systems that we're observing. Well, I want to come back and talk to that, talk to some of those issues at the end if we have time. But first, I want to look at the book particularly and, and look at some of the patterns and stories you tell in the book. Uh, let's st- start by um, talking about what do you think are some of the more important patterns that we observe in macroeconomics that um, that just jump out at you once you just you look at the data. And I have to I should mention, and I quote this all the time, Ed, because I think it's so um, informative. Even though, in some sense, it's totally empty of information, which is the following: uh, You have written, uh, I have a great disadvantage in writing about macro, which is I'm not a macroeconomist. And then you say, but I have a great advantage as well, which is I'm not a macroeconomist. And I think one of the beauties of this book. And your approach is you don't come burdened with any um, ideology or – we probably have some ideology, but not, not any methodological um, baggage with respect to the framework you're going to look at the world with. You're going to look at the data first, and then you're going to say, well, what can I learn from that? So what are some of the key patterns that you see in the data that people ought to be thinking about? Well, let's just amplify what you said just a little bit. An extreme example would be these real business cycle characters who impose upon the data a a, a very uh, severe straitjacket with regard to the conceptual model. Explain, give give the listeners an an intuitive idea of of what real business cycle theory claims is the source of the business cycle. Well, the the way they describe it is they talk about productivity shocks, uh, which are somehow... uh, uh, mysterious things that come from who knows where, and then their job is to describe the uh, transmission mechanism by which these productivity shocks affect the economy. So to them, this we're situation we're in now was caused by a productivity shock, and uh, and and then it's being trans it's being transmitted through some kind of explicit dynamic model, which is what they use for studying the the business cycle. And uh, and what's wrong with that? Well, what's wrong with that is they don't tell what the shock is, and they don't look at any real facts about how the economy actually behaves. So you, let's talk about what I think is the uh, two most important facts uh, that macroeconomics uh, needs to absorb. Uh, the first is that the U.S. economy has been in this very narrow corridor of economic growth for 35 years, growing at 3% per year. Sometimes a little more, sometimes a little less. Little, yeah, and yeah. when it's a little less, that's a recession. When it's a little more, that's a recovery. But that quarter is extremely narrow. So if you if you ask people to list the things that might have affected the long-term economic growth of the United States over the last 35 years, there's a lot of things that come to mind. There's the oil price shocks. There's the Reagan tax cuts. There's the Internet rush. There's the Bush tax cuts. There's monetary the policy. Monetary policy. There's... The peace dividend. The deficits we've run. The All the deficits. Trade deficits, budget deficits. Yeah, on and on. And, and so everybody who's uh, recommending policy with regard to all those items, uh, m- most of the rhetoric about that is about long-term economic growth. And uh, 
and you look at the data, it isn't there. It just isn't there. Because long-term economic growth kind of is what it is. All those things can change, but it kind of seems to just chug along. Yeah, exactly. So it isn't 9.8 meters per second squared. It doesn't have the validity of of a constant of a physical system. But it's still rather remarkable that the, through all these things, the U.S. economy has been growing at 3% per year. And I'm not talking about approximately. I meant if, if, if you started in, uh, in 1970 and did the forecast of where the U.S. GDP growth would be, there would be these air bands that got larger and larger over time. And in fact, the core of economic ex- growth has been this very narrow thing that has existed for 35 years. Explain what you mean by air bands. So a forecaster uh, typically thinks that he or she knows what real GDP is going to be next quarter and a quarter thereafter. But then if you uh, describe your uncertainty as you go farther into the future, that uncertainty is going to grow and grow. So if you ask me off the top of my head what GDP, real GDP might be uh, 10 years from now, the estimate I would give you would be uh, surrounded by, uh, let's say, plus or minus 30% urban that represent my uncertainty about where it would be. Whereas if I was predicting a quarter or two ahead, the urban is only one or is plus or minus 2%. But in fact, the economy has grown in this narrow, narrow, narrow quarter at 3%. Of course, it's hard to know whether that is, without under, if you don't understand why it's so narrow, let me say it a different way. If all of us in the in the policy debates are always, you know, vilifying this policy or that one and championing another one. And what you're saying is that we've had various episodes of what are some people call wonderful policy, other people call disastrous, uh, and yet the economy seems to keep growing at three percent. We don't really know if that's going to keep. I mean, it could just be that the really good policies cancel out the really bad ones, and if we got enough of the bad one, it wouldn't keep growing at three percent, or vice versa. It could grow at more than three percent. We didn't do so many stupid things. So we don't, we don't really have a lot of confidence that that 3% range is going to keep going, or do you think we should? Well, you're focused on what is the first question that macroeconomics ought to answer, is why have we had that incredibly constant uh, economic growth for 35 years? That's why I say that's the first, first pattern. Is that answerable, that question? Well, it, it has to be in order for us to talk about the efficacy of various policies that we imagine affect long-term growth. Because that's the fundamental fact, looking backward in terms of economic growth for the U.S. Had you seen some, you know, big major break point, say if, if there was a huge change in the economic growth in the 80s, then you would start looking back at what kinds of policies that occurred in the early 80s that produced that magic change, that dramatic change. But, uh, but to, to uh, emphasize the importance of getting a policy right for long-term economic growth requires, it seems to me, first and foremost, that we explain w- w- what the history has been. Why has it been what it is? And, and the fundamental thing that it has been is it's been constant, incredibly well, constant. Well, let me give you a different argument. I think, I think Milton Friedman, were he alive, and he said something similar, similarly to this, I think, a number of times uh, before his death, uh, that well, we know why the economy's been so stable for the last 30-plus years, it's because monetary policy has been very stable and very steady, and we've learned the virtues of a semi-constant or close-to-constant growth in the money supply as a way of achieving uh, economic, macroeconomic stability. That well, argument that argument was a really good argument about a year and a half ago. <laughs> it has um, 
it, it may not pan out so well over the next few years. But that argument is a legitimate contender, or do you disagree? Well, I think that has more to do with the dips within the economic corridor. So the the other message of this graph is that the if we if the if we interpret the message that the uh, policies within the range that we've experimented with don't have any impact on long-term growth, the this narrow core of economic growth still has recessions where they dip down and it, and then the recovery is where it comes back up. So we ought to be asking, uh, in, in addition, what causes long-term growth? We want to know why have we had those recessions and and uh, how what can we what can we do to prevent them? And I think what the uh, discussion, the description that you just gave us with regard to monetary policy, that's really mostly about uh, making the recessions uh, less frequent and uh, less severe. Now, we we obviously can have policy that is so bad it's going to kick us off that 3% growth path. And there was some risk in the 70s when we had that terrible episode of inflation that mon- mismanagement of monetary policy might have done that, but but it turns out not to have. So within the range of monetary policy that has been explored over the last 35 years, it looks like it plays a role, if anything, in recessions, but not much in terms of long-term economic growth. Yeah, That's a good point. It's a good distinction to remind people about trends versus movement around the trends. Mm -hmm. Uh, So so those are – so you've identified two – Two regular patterns. One, well, that's one pattern. It's a narrow corridor. Growth. Narrow corridor with a little, with a few blips up and, and down. And it has sort of two implications. Go ahead. The picture has two fundamental implications for monetary for uh, macro, <clears throat> which is uh, the emphasis, policy emphasis within the range that we've been dealing with ought to be worried about recessions and not long-term economic growth. And secondly, we want to know why is it that we've had this incredibly uh, narrow corridor of growth growing at three percent per year for so long. But then, then we ought to move on into finding out uh, <clears throat> what the predictors are of the recessions and what the, what we can do to make them less frequent and uh, less severe. All so about, the other, go ahead. The other uh, general pattern is that it's it's not a business cycle that we experience; it's a consumer cycle. So Keynesian thinking has emphasized the animal spirits and investment. As if that were the driver of the economy. But if you look at what's happened for the U.S. Uh, cycle, uh, eight times out of ten, the first sector, the first expenditure component to weaken is is uh, spending on by ho- on uh, homes by individuals. And then the next one is consumer durables, particularly automobiles. And then it's not until the recession actually has officially begun, according to the NBR committee, that the business uh, jumps in and cuts back spending on equipment and software, the short-lived assets, and then later on, the most delayed of all is the is the spending on the long-lived assets, the business long-lived assets, which are structures, factories, and offices. So the timing of these recessions are first it's homes, then cars, and then equipment and software, and finally uh, structures. And in, in terms of recovery, is exactly the same pattern. The first thing that turned around historically is homes and then cars. And then finally, when business sees things obviously improving, then business spending on equipment and software perks up. And the last is this very much delayed uh, spending on, on the long-life assets, offices, and factories. So if, mm-hmm. you under, if, if we understood that, it seems to me to deflect uh, the policy debate 
away from uh, attempts to try to control the business cycle, which is, uh, say, interest rate policy that would affect business investment, and worry more about what it is that drives the consumer spending up and down. And, and the episode that we're in now is really a consumer-driven phenomenon. We've had a long, three, really three years of weakness in homes, and we had weakness in cars throughout two, all 2008, and then we had this catastrophic decline in, in uh, consumer spending in the fourth quarter of last year. So we're in the midst of one of these, uh, very, a, very, a very extreme version of one of these consumer downturns. And, and if you think about what's the right remedy for a consumer downturn, it's first of all not to have the overbuilding of homes and cars that causes the collapse. But when you're in the midst of the collapse, as we are now, at some point, uh, a fiscal or monetary policy that helps consumers to uh, get back into the marketplace for homes and cars, that's the right remedy. And instead, we are emphasizing uh, Wall Street and uh, lending to businesses when, when that's not the, not the uh, precursor to recessions, that's not the precursor to recoveries either. So if we understood the basic facts, disaggregated facts about the business cycle, I think that we would think very differently about policy, both fiscal and monetary policy, when it comes to preventing and making them less extreme once they're occurring. Now, in advance of the crisis, I'm pretty sure it was in advance of the crisis, you wrote a paper on housing, uh, that you presented at Jackson Hole, if, if I remember correctly. Was it 2005? Was that, that the was date? That was 2006. 2006. August 2006. So there was already some weakness in housing prices at that point, but you basically were, this was well before the recession started, well before uh, the disastrous Wall Street problems, and you wrote a paper saying that, that housing price changes play an important role in recessions. And two questions, over what time period are you drawing the data from? And secondly, what was the response of the traditional macroeconomists to, the, that, to that story? Well, um, to just to amplify the story a little bit, I was asked, the, the, whole, uh, ep, the whole event at Jackson Hole that year was focusing on housing in various ways and, and the uh, monetary policy. And they asked me to write a paper called Housing and the Business Cycle. And so I changed that rhetorically to saying housing is the business cycle, which is a little bit simplified and a little bit exaggerated by just trying to emphasize the need for monetary policy to focus on this housing sector. And uh, again, it's based on the facts. We've had, at that point, we've had 10 downturns since World War II. Two of them were not housing-led. Two of them were not consumer downturns. We had a 1953 what I call the Department of Defense downturn, that's a disarmament downturn when the Korean War armistice was signed in July of 53. Spending by the Department of Defense, which had gone up to 14 or 15 percent of GDP, that just plummeted down to 8 or 9 percent in a very short period of time. So that's a disarmament, uh, <clears throat> structural change, as a matter of fact. And then we had one other episode that was different. That was the 2001 event, which I call the Internet Comeuppance because businesses really drove the economy in 1998, 1999, looking for profitability on on the Internet, on the web. And when they didn't find it, in 2000 and 2001, they dramatically cut back spending on equipment and software. So that was an episode 
that wasn't led by housing. In fact, housing and consumer durables didn't play much of a Very role strong, in that at all. Yeah. It was a really a business downturn. The only business downturn that we've had, even though we call it a business cycle, we've only had one business downturn, which was at 2001. It was you very know, mild. Happened. It was extremely mild. It was extremely well, mild, unless you were in San Jose. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, those people had a lot of skills, and they um, they bounced back, a lot of them. A lot of them were 23 years old, too, and 17 and 19. And I, I know some of them, they they were making a lot of money writing uh, HTML before it, when it was hard to do. And um, they were making a lot of money doing that, and then they had to tool up into something else. They had to learn some other languages, and they did. Yeah, so housing uh, had, uh, you asked me how long a time period I looked at, and the answer is all the quarterly data since 1947. In eight out of ten cases, the housing sector had signaled the um, oncoming recession, giving you an early warning by about three or four quarters. Now, there were two what might be called uh, false positives, meaning that housing was weakening and we didn't have recession, and in both those episodes, it was because spending by the Department of Defense offset weakness on the consumer side. One was uh, when the uh, Green War was starting in 1951. The other one was when Vietnam was war was starting in 1967. So if you look at the historical record of housing as a predictor or precursor recession, it's extraordinarily accurate. Now you asked me about you you use the word home prices, and yeah, I, I wanted to get your I, want, I wanted you to clarify when you say the housing sector. Are you talking about building or are you talking yeah. about prices? Yeah, I'm not talking about prices. Uh, prices are a uh, imperfect indicator. It's hard to measure too. It's hard to measure, but the thing about prices is that, um, and up until this time, the what might be called price discovery in homes has been extremely slow, meaning that that um, sellers are reluctant to accept the apparent market decline in the price of their homes. No doubt. And, and they just hold on and hold on and hold on. Well, that encouraged a lot of people, I think, in 2003 and four and five to, to say, well, prices are going up a lot, but they're sticky downward because people don't like to take a loss on their house. They'll just wait it out. Yeah, so what you get in that... That wasn't it, true, of course. <laughs> it wasn't true, but it had been true up until that point in time. So you can think about Southern California, where this was tested in a very severe way in the early 1990s because we lost a lot of jobs here in Southern California in the defense sector. And we had a much more severe recession than anywhere, than most other places in the United States. With it's the 91 recession. Like this, is the post, this is the post-Cold War 1991 recession. Yeah, exactly. So... Um, <clears throat> faced with all the job loss, uh, we had a very weak housing sector. And what happens is that the volume of sales and the volume of, uh, of building drops by about 50% within a year or so. And But home prices during that period of time are completely resistant. You don't have the huge appreciation that you had in 1998, 1999, but you don't have any price declines. Then you begin this ever so slow <clears throat> decline in home prices by about 4 or 5% per year until the market bottoms out five or six years later in 1995 and 1996. So that's a price discovery process that is very, very slow. But the volume is what moves very rapidly. So what I'm emphasizing as a predictor recession is not home prices because of the way that the home prices are determined historically, which is sluggish and, and not a very reliable indicator but rather the volumes, which is really what houses are all about. So historically, we've had a volume cycle, not a price cycle. 
This time is totally different. You know, this time we're having uh, a huge Both. decline in prices <laughs> early, before the recession even began. Yeah. Well, I think my speculation on that, and this is just a footnote to the conversation because we're talking about it, but I, it intrigues me. Uh, there's no doubt in my mind that an enormous number of uh, home construction, house construction and home purchases in the early part of the 2000s were second homes uh, that people bought on spe- for speculative speculative purposes, thinking they would rise and were an alternative investment side of the stock market, which had just plummeted, and, and, and people thought, this is great. Uh, the 1997 Tax Act uh, had gotten rid of capital gains on houses totally under a certain amount, as long and you could even do that for a second house if you lived in it for two of the last five years. So I think a lot of these houses were unoccupied and did behave; their prices did behave differently than than they had in the past because of that second home phenomenon. But that's just that's speculation, hard to measure. Yeah, that could be, but so the. The key thing for rapid price formation is you need to have motivated sellers. And a typical owner-occupant is not a particularly motivated seller. That person can say, well, I'm just going to sit in this house forever until I get my price. But the motivated sellers historically have been the builders because the builders do not want to carry a lot of inventory indefinitely. So if you look again at the Southern California experience, you'll see that the builders cut price more rapidly than the owner-occupied homes. And they start to get uh, a return in sales volumes within a a couple of years after the downturn. So that's a symptom of of how the market can operate more rapidly if you have people who are really motivated. This story, this time, the motivated sellers, the banks, because you've got all these foreclosures and the banks are just in effect auctioning off these properties. So to the extent that your second home story is accurate, it must be because of foreclosures with regard to those properties because you've got really that what's unusual this time is the foreclosures have come early in the process and the banks, which have always been motivated sellers, are really driving the market in a way that that they have not historically done that. But I, want, I want to make sure I understand your volume story. So, yeah. so there's a certain set of houses getting built each year. There's new home construction that's ongoing. What are we seeing in the data that is the precursor to a recession, uh, to eight of the ten recessions, and twice weren't didn't lead to recession? But are you talking about a drop off in new home construction? First, it's volume of sales. Of sales, period. Just the house is not moving. Sales drop, and then and and um, and then uh, building volume drops. So what's tell me a story, Doctor Lemer? What's the uh, why does the drop in sales? The fact that the market is. There are fewer buyers and sellers transacting. Why should that lead to a recession? What's going on? Yeah, so that's a good question because it's one thing to say that it proceeds. And I think when you say leads, I think maybe you're saying it causes. I'm tempted. Yeah. I'm, I, I, can, I can be pushed away. Because, because we economists are, are fundamentally an interventionist discipline, which we want to talk about how the government ought to intervene to make the markets operate more efficiently or not. And we ought to rely on the markets. And so we really are need to make causal conclusions. Unfortunately, we don't have the data that are up to the task. Well, all we have are these temporal orderings in which first houses move and then, and then um, our cars move and then finally we have the real recession. And from those temporal orderings, to those temporal orderings, uh, we have to add a compelling story, a story about why this is causal. Uh, not just uh, coincidence, ordering. yeah, just or just a coincidence. Just not eight just out of the last ten, but the next 
Tan won't be like this. Yeah. Do you have a story? Well, um, I, I think that the the story in housing. For so another way of asking your question is, houses are a pretty small fraction of GDP. Right. And residential investment is only four or five percent. But if you look at the, yeah, uh, why should this one little sector struggling yeah. ripple through the whole economy? That's more or less the reaction, by the way, that I got <laughs> at Jackson Hole. Yeah. First of all, that, and secondly, we don't do sectors. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> we do the economy. <laughs> we, we do K. We, we've talked about this on on Econ Dark Board. We do we do K. You know, capital. Yeah, exactly. And, and H is a small part of K. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I I think that the um, the story on housing is one of these Minsky uh, cycles in which um, early in expansions, the um, loans are given to individuals who have the income, both to service the debt, but also to pay off the principal. And then the uh, home prices are, are evidently uh, increasing, and, and people come to think of that as a permanent condition. And the lending standards tend to weaken up. And and uh, and then and then there, the uh, loans are given to people who don't have the income to to retire the debt to pay down the principal, but they do have the income to do the debt service. But they rely on appreciation of homes to uh, pay the for the uh, principal to draw down the principal. Then later on, in what uh, Minsky calls the Ponzi period, loans are given to individuals who have income. That isn't even enough to do the debt service, let alone pay down the debt. And then those individuals relying completely on home price appreciation to pay for their assets. And that's a period in which home prices tend to be appreciating very substantially. And the lenders aren't particularly worried about defaults and delinquencies because the home is paying for itself. That's really the the story of the subprime. No doubt. The subprime market. They, yep. They, they, it's... It was a two, what's called a 228 product, which is a two-year um, teaser rate followed by 28 years of reality. But they knew that the end these of the loans t- were issued under the understanding on the part of the lender that the borrower is not ever going to be able to pay that real rate, the rate that would apply it after the two-year teaser. And so the lender knew that there, there's going to be a constant string of service fees from the refinancing that would occur every two years, which was a great business model as long as you had appreciation. But as soon as the substantial appreciation was gone, then you couldn't issue those subprime loans anymore because the the business model was a failed business model. So that's the story of where we're in now, I think, which is that that the, um, the Federal Reserve was complicit in supporting the the um, very low teaser rates, right? In fact, I think it's probably accurate to say the teaser rates came from Washington. It's certainly the case that we had global, <clears throat> very low real rates of interest. And uh, that those real rates of interest support high valuations for any asset, including homes or equities as well. So some of the run-up in home prices is due to that. But this addition, is the 2001 we, to 2004 period. When, well, even now we have extremely low real rates of interest. Yeah, well, that's recently, yeah. But yeah, but but in, by historical standard, this decade has been one of extraordinarily low real rates of interest. And um, but that's at the long end. It's it's really the Fed's 
policy in 2002, three, and four, well after the recession was already over, the Fed had what I've called deflation dread disorder. Yeah, they, that's true. They, they thought that deflation was not a symptom, but some kind of a cause of economic malaise. And they were going to prevent the cause from ever getting to the shores of the United States. Because it, it had gotten to Japan once. As it had gotten it, to yeah. Japan. So they were going to prevent that from getting to the U.S. with incredibly low rates of interest, even in the setting in which the economy is growing well, the unemployment rate is low. If you, if the rates that we had, those interest rates that we had, are just totally incompatible with historic rate setting by the Federal Reserve. You would normally have expected them to raise the rates coming out of the 2001 recession when the economy was improving, the job market was improving. But instead, they were fighting this phantom enemy, which is deflation, and um, gave us the low rates. And that's the teaser rates that supported the subprime market. But then somehow they woke up to the fact that those teaser rates were inappropriate. And I mean, the low, the low Fed funds rate was inappropriate and in that it had inflationary implications going forward. So they dramatically increased interest rates, and big surprise, that ended the subprime market. It takes out a huge class of buyers out of the housing market, so volumes drop, and and then uh, and then prices ended their appreciation, obviously. And uh, in some parts of the country, start to come down. You start to get these uh, foreclosures, and banks are start to unload these things. So you get very dramatic drops in uh, prices, which exacerbates the situation and makes it even worse. But in this particular recession, one or whatever we're going to call what we're in now, the collapse of the housing market and the, the um, both in price and volume had spillovers into the financial sector that were uh, rather unusual because of the mortgage-backed securities and the leverage that financed those at Bear Stearns, Merrill Lynch, and others that then caused concerns about whether credit markets were going to even be functional, et cetera, led to the series of, of interventions going back to March of 2008. But in previous recessions, I want to play uh, the skeptical macroeconomist now, a difficult role for me, but let me put my hat on. Previous recessions, that spillover into the financial sector wouldn't be there. So do you have a story to answer the skepticism of the macroeconomists who say, well, in those seven of those previous nine recessions, how could housing be an important precursor when it's such a small part of GDP? Well, um, the, the other big component that weakens uh, prior to recessions is the spending by consumers on durables. So I would think the way to ask your question is, why is it that durables tend to weaken a quarter or two after houses? What's the mechanism there? And there are really two possibilities. One is that uh, uh, those are interest rate-sensitive sectors as well. So when the Federal Reserve uh, raises interest rates at the ends of expansions, when the economy is overbuilt both in terms of homes and autos, and therefore when those sectors are fragile, uh, they kill off both sectors, both houses and durables, at roughly the same time, within a quarter of each other. Uh, some of that comes through, uh, from uh, filters through the housing sector, because part of consumer durables are actually furniture. So you naturally, you're going to have weakness in spending on furniture when the housing sector turns down. And then some of the weakness in, in autos comes from housing, too, because the the appreciation of home prices made people think they could afford more autos and more expensive automobiles. So when that stops, uh, suddenly you have, a, in a sense, uh, the incomes, in, 
income flow becomes a lot less because you're not getting the the all the income flow that came from appreciation of homes. Well, and, and the consequence, your your uh, consumers cut back, particularly in the things that they can cut back, which are durables. And, right, and, and postpone purchases of the new car, the new washing machine. You repair yeah. it instead of buying a new one. So if we let's understand that the cycle is really about postponement to a large extent, and the things that are postponable from the standpoint of consumer side are homes and autos. And then once that postponing gets going, then the business say, well, now's the time to do some postponing of our own, which is we'll postpone spending on equipment and software, and we're going to postpone our commitment of workers as well. We start to get the layoffs, and, and that's when we're really in the depths of the recession. And when you say postponement, I think of it as just, you know, I'm uncertain about the future. Uh, I'm uncertain about the demand for my product being what it was, so why take a risk in a, on a capital outlay that has uncertainty? higher degree of uncertainty than it normally would have. Yeah, exactly. I, I want to come back to talk about this episode, too, because I really feel um, we've overemphasized the importance of Wall Street and not understood that the real problem was a Main Street problem. And and you described it as um, the problems in housing led to problems in mortgage-backed securities and uh, tremendous losses of, of uh, capital and banks and a consequence... Uh, a, a credit squeeze, I guess is the word, or a freezing freeze, up of the credit yeah. markets. Which is weird. I don't even know if that what that is. But I don't either. So you're you're with me, which is I'd like to know exactly what they're talking about. So, but I have always thought that the biggest problem was on the consumer side. That we had this overspent consumer, heavy in debt, not going to be earning magic income off their houses houses for a very long time. And that that the consequence of that would be we would have sluggish economic growth. That that the consumer as the locomotive wasn't going to be there, and that's a recipe for sluggish growth. But we didn't think that there'd be a coordinating mechanism that would get all consumers to recognize at the same time that they weren't as rich as they thought they were. So it was a recipe for a kind of ongoing problem as different consumers realized at different points of time that they weren't as wealthy as they thought they were, and they cut back spending. But I think what happened is that our our leaders, uh, uh, Secretary Paulson and Chairman Bernanke and President Bush, went to Congress and uh, said that unless we pass that tarp bill, we're going to have the Great Depression. If you do Google Trends, which tells you how often people are looking at different words, you type in the Great Depression, you see a huge spike of interest in what exactly the Great Depression was roughly in the middle of September, roughly sure. exactly when... Paulson and Bernanke and the president went to Congress to get that TARP bill passed. It's a horrible that, plan. That unleashes uh, this fear on the part of consumers that the Great Depression is coming, and they all of a sudden become defensive. So October, November, December were just terrible as far as retail sales were concerned. Savings rates shot up, personal savings rates shot up dramatically, and we produced on Wall Street the the uh, catastrophic coordination, which is what was worrying me all along, a coordination I don't think would occur. So I really do think that the, uh, we overemphasize the importance of Wall Street and the need to have that tarp bailout, which, as you know, wasn't pursued anyway. Yeah, they dropped it a week later. They dropped it a week later. And in the meantime, they had frightened us all to death, and they created the problem, which is that dramatic, rapid drop in consumer spending. And then, and, and then, just continuing with more thinking about that, if if 
if people aren't buying automobiles, so automobile sales went from uh, 16 million units a year down to probably 12 or something like that before the catastrophic numbers in the last quarter, and then they're down to only 9 million units. Well, there, there's no firm in that sector that can make profits when you've gone from a 16 million unit period with very weak profitability anyway down to almost nine, half that yeah. at 9 million units. So if, you, if you've got General Motors, which is actually completely hemorrhaging cash, and you do a cash infusion to your to this uh, troubled corporation that's hemorrhaging cash. That's just a recipe for um, a, a, a uh, continued hemorrhaging. Why the, the the taxpayers' money is just going to be totally dissipated. What you want to do, the only hope that this sector can have in a short run, is to bring the buyers back and and uh, encourage people to come back and buy and come back and buy cars again. Until that happens. General Motors is going to be limping along and uh, inevitably going to go bankrupt unless there's some kind of magic thing that brings buyers back. So then what I'm trying to emphasize is it is a Wall Street problem or a Main Street problem. I think the problem is Main Street, meaning that we ought to be getting people, especially now, back buying homes again and uh, and buying automobiles because we are no longer in that overbuilt situation after three and a half years of of underbuilding with regard to homes, and after about a year of problems in autos, the the excesses of the past have been to a large extent uh, alleviated, and now would be a time to give us some Main Street pro- mainstream help to bring us back, rather than throwing all the money at Wall Street firms. Yeah, and well, the incentives for the future are disastrous from that as well, which really disturbs me. The redistributional aspects are atrocious. It it encourages a great lack of faith uh, in capitalism, and partly correctly so, because I think they're exploiting the system, not the system of capitalism, but the political system. It should lead to a loss of faith in politics. Um, but I, I, let me see if I have the, the narrative correctly or give you a little twist on it. So it, you're, in a way, it seems you're saying that the Wall Street problem and the Main Street problem have the same source, which is – an anxiety about the future and a lack of confidence uh, that things are going to be healthy in the next three months, six months, nine months. And so everyone's cautious, pulling back, and that's causing these disruptions. So it's not that so much that housing caused Wall Street's problems, but that the policy response uh, terrified everybody. It's not That can't be the whole story because the you know, some of the interest rates that people look at to look at it, so you know how well capital markets are working, the so-called TED spread and other – other measures, they went up before that September. They spiked, I think, before that September 08 political panic. Yeah, well, I think the way to say it is that the um, Lehman bankruptcy, uh, right or wrong, uh, created great fear of uh, great concern about solvency among all the counterparties in the in the financial sector. And the result was there was a uh, stampede toward treasuries that the only bank anybody would trust would be Uncle Sam, and the uh, European banks and and uh, had to raise interest rates in order to compete for a smaller set of deposits. That's what gives a rise to the TED spread. As soon as the Lehman bankruptcy occurs, as you say, that spread increases very substantially. And then Paulson and Bernanke, whose job it is to make the um, financial system work, say, oh, my God, this happened on our watch. What are we going to do? And then they put together the cockamamie TARP plan, 
and uh, go to Congress and and uh, threaten a Great Depression if it isn't passed. So I think it's true that that we had abnormalities in the in the financial markets, but those abnormalities were blown completely uh, beyond their, their their appropriate concern by the, the way that the TARP bill was sold to Congress. But the way that it's interesting because uh, you know the, the the for me this the question we'll never know the answer to is what would have happened if the Fed had let Bear Stearns fail in March of '08 and the signal that would have sent to Lehman, Merrill, AIG, and others would have been a very strong one. Now, that might have had a catastrophic effect. We got a catastrophic effect anyway, uh, and so it's not clear to me that these counterparty risks were so decisive. I, I've talked about this many times. I think the, you know, the, the claim at the time was, well, they're so tied into other people. There's so many counterparties. There's, there's, there's millions of contracts that Bear Stearns has written, some overnight, some short, other short-term measures. Unraveling that via bankruptcy is going to freeze the financial system forever. And yet Lehman Brothers has gone bankrupt, and true, there's all this other stuff going on at the same time. But Lehman Brothers has gone through bankruptcy and is going through bankruptcy. It's a, it's a – we'll never know what might have happened if we had let the pain be short and uh, intense. Instead, we keep stringing it out. Well, I, I, I think that an, another way to help answer the question is to ask what happened in the real economy. So the credit freezing story is that the investment component of GDP should have fallen very substantially, not because of weakness in the economy, but because the businesses couldn't get credit. Yeah, that's the claim. The commercial paper market froze up, and if you can't have credits, the lifeblood of commerce, et cetera. So what's the evidence? Well, first of all, the um, balance sheets of non-financial corporations had been very healthy at that time. There's a lot of cash, more cash than there was indebtedness. And secondly, the non-financial corporations were worried about the future, obviously. They see the problems in housing, the sluggishness there. So their desire to expand and to borrow was diminished uh, anyway. But if you look, therefore, at the level of investment spending, it was really pretty normal until until the, the fourth quarter when it and when it dropped off very dramatically, I think because of the realization that we were in for a lot of trouble, uh, in part because of the of the uh, story which they bought into that there was a credit crunch, which I'm denying, by the way. Yeah, but more importantly, the consumers were cutting back spending, and this was it. You know, this is going to really tip us into one of the biggest downturns that we've had since the Great Depression. So in other words, I'm, I'd like to see the hard evidence that a credit crunch affected the real economy. Now, there's no question in my mind that a credit crunch affected the mortgage, mortgages. People couldn't, because the people who had borrowed with no money down couldn't use refinancing to help pay those, even yeah, just the interest. All, all, almost overnight, uh, that was a market that disappeared. Right. And... Um, and that was that kills the market off big time because you're eliminating a large fraction of potential buyers of homes because they're simply not going to be able to get the credit anymore. So I would say that the housing sector was very much afflicted by a credit crunch, meaning by a credit crunch I mean a dramatic increase in lending standards, higher interest rates, but most importantly, just outright denial of lending. Yeah, people who had access to credit now couldn't get it, and they probably shouldn't have had it before, but they were able to get it because of the price appreciation. Now, that, that was gone. Yeah, now, so on the, on the commercial side, there's no question that, as you said, credit spreads increased. 
that the that the interest rates for um, corporate bonds riskier stuff substantially riskier stuff relative to safer stuff. Yeah, and and but some of that was a return to normal because yeah. we were seriously <laughs> underpricing risk for a long time. Yeah, I always like when people say, you know, the credit market's so unhealthy right now, you have to have good credit to get a loan. And I think, well, isn't that kind of the idea? Isn't that? Yeah, and <laughs> to continue that thought, we're totally surprised that these banks that have had capital infusion from the federal government are not ramping up in uh, lending. Well, <laughs> we don't want them to give loans to people who aren't going to pay it back. That's, been the, that's what got us into yeah, trouble. It's unbelievable. <laughs> uh, well, we're getting a little short on time. I want to turn to an issue that has sort of come up in passing that I plan to ask you about anyway, and then I want to close with a discussion of empirical work generally. Um, what do you think is the prospect for identifying the impact of fiscal policy? And let me ask the question this way. We're about to spend an enormous sum of borrowed money. We, the government, is about to spend an enormous sum of borrowed money, and First-rate economists on different sides of the political spectrum are saying things like it has to, it should be twice as big. We should spend two trillion, and others are saying it's a major mistake. It's not going to help anything at all. What are the odds that? And I don't think there's a great deal of empirical support for either either position. I think they're mainly arguing about more fundamental uh, ideas in the background. And, and the way I phrase it is. They're arguing about whether we should be more or less like Europe. The people who think we ought to spend two trillion extra, one in America that's American role for a government role in America that's more like Europe's, and the people who want us to spend less are saying, "I want to be less like Europe," and that's what they're arguing about, not not the so-called science. So I don't think there's a lot of science. Am I wrong about that? And do you think there's hope of getting some evidence of the impact of, say, government spending that's borrowed, which is the fundamental question right now of, of that people are. Uh, claiming an answer to in as a solution to the problem. I agree with uh, the the implication of that question. It's really it's rather embarrassing to see economists uh, expressing opinions that have such little validity that they're they're not based on any evidence, and it's just a storytelling. And the stories are extremely weak in support of the, either point of view, really. But but I, I as far as the rhetoric is concerned, I think we need to stop talking about the government creating jobs, because in a normal economy, when the government uh, spends, it takes jobs from the private sector, it doesn't create jobs. So the cost is the foregone activities in the private sector, and it's only when you have excess capacity, unused uh, workers, that you have uh, potential for a stimulus. But if that stimulus is going to work, surely it has to focus on where the excess capacity is where the un, unused workers are. And again, if you look at the reality, there are four critical sectors where you have a sharp uh, decline in activities and and uh, and uh, workers who uh, are sitting on the sidelines are, first of all, building in the, in the housing sector. Secondly, uh, consumer durables, especially automobiles. Third is uh, uh, restaurants. And uh, fourth is retail. So if I were going to design a stimulus package, I would make sure that whatever government borrowing and spending occurred would have the spending focused critically on those sectors. But if you look at that $787 billion package that came through the Congress, only $8 billion was focused on these critical sectors. The rest is just sort of hopeful, hopeful uh, thoughts about how that might trickle into where the, where the unused capacity is. 
So I'm I'm uh, very distressed. But here's what distresses me, and it and it's and I I I worry about it because I know how the myth making occurred after the Great Depression. So the seven hundred eighty-seven billion, I don't think. I'm not sure any of it's been spent yet. It's getting it's close if it, it but most most of it hasn't been spent yet. But regardless of what happens, at some point the economy is going to recover. If it recovers in the next year, uh fiscal policy will be trumpeted as great success. If we have a 10-year malaise, God forbid, like the so-called Japanese lost decade, uh, maybe people will say it didn't work well. But how confident are you that We'll get this is anything close to a natural experiment where we'll actually learn something about these transmission mechanisms. I'm not too optimistic. I do think that um, the, there have been some uh, fiscal experiments historically in a data set that are relevant, and, and uh, in particular, the spending by the Department of Defense. Because I do think that you can see weakness in the economy in 1967. That was offset by, but it's a huge ramp up in defense spending. It's not the tiny little things we're talking about now, and and also in 1951. Yeah, so there's some evidence in the historical record that at least some kinds of spending can avert the severe economic downturns. Yeah, we've had Bob Higgs on here before, who argues that the the World War II episode, which most people cite as the great example of government spending ending the Great Depression. That in fact it was just good for the military sectors. It was not very good for the. There was no spillover. It didn't create real prosperity. In fact, it was a very difficult time. And I think that's the. Um, I think that's where the where the argument. Uh, well, I, yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't focus necessarily on that one. But the Korean War episode is a great one because you see fiscal policy going in two different directions. A huge ramp up in DOD spending when the economy is weak in 1951, and then in 1953 when the economy is uh, evidently okay you see a huge cutback, a kind of exogenous cutback in fiscal spending at that time, and it did tip us into recession. Have you looked at the Japanese episode? No, I've not. Because they've spent you know, an enormous amount on infrastructure in the last 10 years. I don't know if uh, the timing or impact or lack of that is, is relevant, but it's, it's so easy for people to say, well, they just didn't spend enough, or... Uh, they spent way too much, and that's why they haven't recovered. And it, it just seems very difficult to to study that in any way that's vaguely scientific. And part of the problem, it seems to me, is that for a lot of these episodes, we have one data point. <laughs> you know, we have you know, you've mentioned two on the Department of Defense, uh, the Great Depression. We've had one depression in the 20th century. Uh, it's kind of hard to make to draw scientific conclusions with so few degrees of freedom. It seems it comes back to the three volume logic: yes, no, and we don't know seems to me that it would be healthier at this point to say that the profession really doesn't know about the uh, appropriate design of a fiscal stimulus package. Yeah, I think that's um, that would be an accurate statement. Let, let me close and ask you about something that you've done a lot of work on in the past that we haven't focused on, but I think about uh, a lot these days when I think about econometrics generally. And, and for people out there listening, um, you know, our, our, my guest Ed Lemer today is – emphasizing narratives and and stories and patterns but you are a Ed, you are a, a world class econometrician you can you can do the equations as as well or better than anybody so you're you're speaking from a very credible position and i think about graduate education in in economics where we spend a lot of time giving students 
not so much here at George Mason, by the way, but in, in general at, the, at, at most graduate programs, we spend a lot of time giving students an arsenal of econometric techniques that they race out into the world, uh, a world that has very uh, inexpensive uh, computing costs, and they do a lot of analysis, and some of it sticks and it gets published. And you've been very critical of the process and the conclusions that people draw in, ter draw in terms of statistical uh, statistical significance. You, you wrote a, a very, I was going to say influential, I, I don't know how influential, it was an important paper called Let's Take the Con Out of Econometrics. And you've recently written about faith-based econometrics, the, the tendency to use numbers and analysis to um, confirm one's biases. And I look at the at the profession in the last 10 years or so, and there's been enormous attention paid to these extremely sophisticated econometric techniques that have a lot of cleverness to them. Are we finding truth? Uh, and if not, why do we spend so much time training our students that way? Well, and that's a rhetorical question, and I totally agree with your opinion on that, which is that we, we emphasize the grammar and the syntax of the message, not the content of the message. Our economics programs talk about the grammar and syntax in, in the sense that we teach people how to do the mathematics, how to carry out the complicated econometrics, how to write papers that look like they they uh, are scientific. But we don't teach people how to think like economists. And uh, that, that, I think, is a great indictment of our profession. How you've been a, a somewhat, you've certainly been a contrarian voice and an unorthodox voice in in talking about the misuse of econometrics. Have you had an impact there besides being uh, people saying, yeah, you know, Lemur's kind of crazy, he's got this skepticism? I mean, you, you've advocated different techniques that have been used by folks, right? True. Are they spreading? Is it? No, they're used occasionally. They're, they're very similar to what I'm suggesting now, which is that when you do this econometrics, you ought to do a sensitivity analysis to show how much it, your conclusions depend upon the assumptions that you're using. And therefore, if they're very sensitive, then we ought to be in that third uh, logical position in which it's it's too sensitive to be believed. We just don't know the result. And those those methods are used to some extent, but I think the um, the the uh, the real way I've been greeted to a large extent is indifference. <laughs> I guess. Yeah, well, I, I, it's really kind of remarkable. I I've asked. I started asking people after I started thinking about this whether there is any um, econometric study, and I don't mean fact-based, I mean econometric, sophisticated statistical analysis, that has brought about a consensus in the profession that wasn't there before but became a consensus because everyone said, well, that empirical work was so decisive. Who could argue with it? And I, don't, I can't think of one. Um, am I being a little bit too extreme there? No, I totally agree with that position. And I would say it a little bit differently, which is that the econometric profession you can think of as an enterprise that gives us standard errors. And what is it that we economists believe that depends upon the standard errors that the econometricians have suggested? And the answer is nothing, really. What do you mean by that? Explain that for the non-statistically sophisticated listener. Yeah. When you say they give us standard errors and they don't mean anything, what do you mean? Well, they, they, um, the standard errors give you the range of knowledge that you have about a particular setting, and they're either narrow or large depending upon 
what the data are suggesting. So the enterprise of, of econometrics is, is, first of all, to give you sort of an estimate of where the truth is, but most importantly, to put an error band around that estimate to describe our range of knowledge, how much we really know about this setting. The econometric enterprise actually focuses on both of those, but but uh, both the estimate and the and the error band around there. But uh, a lot of the subtlety of econometrics has to do with what that error band is. Yet I don't know anything in economics that depends upon that. Sometimes it depends on the sign of the coefficients, but I don't think that typically is very much uh, driven by empirical results. So I agree with you that that as much as we say we're an empirical discipline, a pattern-seeking discipline, we're really a storytelling discipline. And uh, my book, which is Pattern to Stories, <clears throat> emphasizes the macro patterns, which I think ought to play a role in the way that we form our stories. So I would like to elevate the role that data actually play in our thinking by uh, allowing us to display it visually and tap into the processing skills for visual information that we all have. And uh, and and maybe we'll become, if, if not more scientific, at least uh, we'll produce better literature. And we'll be a little more honest. And be a little more honest. <laughs> <laughs> My guest today has been Ed Lemer of UCLA. Ed, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thank you very much. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.